que é a vida. É o princípio da morte. O que é a morte? É o fim da vida. O que é a existência? É a continuidade do sangue. O que é o sangue? É a razão da existência. jumping in here for just a moment to let you know a little bit about what you're about to hear. This episode is going to bring us a new co-host, someone who's not been on the Bloody Pit before, but I'm so glad to have him here. He joined us over on the Nashie cast last year for an episode, and we had a whole lot of fun. If you've not been aware of his own podcast, Cinema PsyOps, allow me to introduce you to Court PsyOps. His show is an absolute blast and can only best be described by someone who's listened to it as, well, let's see, um, an experiment in just how warped a mind can become when you watch movies that you shouldn't be watching at far too young an age. And uh, although I often couldn't care less about some of the topics they cover on the show, I find myself utterly fascinated by the show and their discussion. I may never care about, say, oh, the Transformers cartoon show from the 80s, but listening to him and his co-host, and sometimes other co-hosts that join the two of them, is an absolute blast. And if you enjoy the discussion here, you might enjoy his show. I'll play the ad for his show here in just a moment to give you a sense of what it might be like. But in this episode... He and I decided to uh, make our lives a little more difficult slash deadly, and we decided to sit down and talk about the first of the Brazilian Coffin Joe films. These movies, if you've not seen them, this might be a good introduction, and it might not be. Let's just say that I would try to encourage you, if you're at all curious about the Mad Brazilians Coffin Joe films, um, give them a try. We go through this one. Pretty, uh, pretty intensely, we uh, do spoil good big chunks of it, but e- as Court says near the end of the show, I think it's a good indicator that even with all the things that we reveal about the movie, I don't think it really does justice to it until you see the movie for yourself. So, hope you enjoy this, hope that you have a good time with what we're doing uh, covering this verse of the Coffin Joe films, and uh, like I say, check out Court's podcast as well and uh, with any luck i'll get to have him back here talking about uh, the second coffin joe film as well very soon did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds uh, necrophilia. Uh, uh, uh. it's a dead issue man don't don't push it cinema psyops is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject no one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in it. 
It takes a powerful goddess like Connie to jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of it. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How be did a rough you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett and joining me tonight uh, for the first time on The Bloody Pit is a fellow podcaster from far, far away. He's across the globe. He's out in a cornfield or someplace somewhere in, uh, where, where, where are you again? Uh, Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> it's Court Psyops, people. He's joining us here for the first time on the Bloody Pit, although it, it is not his first visit to uh, mm, the the land of Nod, uh, which is basically wherever I happen to be because, boy, am I a sleepy person here lately. But no, Court is joining us tonight to talk about, um, uh, wait a minute, what film are we covering? At midnight, I'll take your soul. You know, I've been waiting to hear you say the title because your voice is much more perfect for the tone of this particular picture than mine is. Uh, sinister? Sure, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> and- yeah, do, do, the, do the sinister thing up <laughs> as much as you feel the need because <laughs> if ever there was a film, uh, I mean, I don't know how you – as, as a broad overview of um, – these particular movies, I've, I've got a, a, an interesting history, which I think mirrors a lot of people's here in the States with these movies. But I'm curious, uh, when we decided to cover this movie, which meant, of course, sitting down and going through this movie, what, what was the first thought that popped into your head about going to going to sit down and watch this movie again? Well, I have a fonder memory of how the film affects me than actually sitting and watching the film for entertainment purposes. Um I like to look at it more of as as a sort of marvelous achievement than it is actually a film on its own merits because it's very rough. It's a first film of a first-time director for the most part. He had made other films that never really kind of got there, you know, and never really got fully completed. And yeah. this was like the biggest gamble this man could have made in his life, and it paid off for him in spades. He's become a pop culture icon this would be almost like watching the first episode of Movie Macabre with Elvira almost because that's kind of what he is now where he's like a TV show host. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I was pleasantly surprised and uh, I guess we'll just jump into this. I was pleasantly surprised with uh, when in, uh, I guess it was 10 years ago now when he came out with what's kind of the third official Coffin Joe film kind of summing up the the what would be termed a trilogy at that point with embodiment of evil in 2008. And I was, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know about you, but I was expecting, well, this will probably be a bit of a mm, clusterfuck. You know, there's no way that this is going to be a film that I'm going to be able to hold up and kind of be mesmerized by. But I was stunned by how good embodiment of evil was. And I was not expecting it. Yeah. It's shockingly so how good it actually is. And the way that he ends up, retconning all of the censorship issues that he's had in the previous two films 
and finding a way around that and still continuing the story to make it a full-fledged trilogy and even found a way for the excuse for the amount of time between uh, the second one, This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse and The Embodiment of Evil. It makes perfect sense and it's just so wonderful the way they do it. And it's like, you never really left the world, you know? (laughs) It's kind of amazing what he pulled off. I'm, I'm still shocked to this day that he was able to do what he did. But back to this first film before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, for those who are unaware, um, this is a Brazilian film made by um, a, a crazed madman by the by the name of um, uh, it's it's Jose Mojica Marins. And uh, I, w- I was trying desperately to make sure that I pronounced his name properly because I get enough shit about mispronouncing Spanish names on the Nashi cast, and I just don't need that over here. So um, <laughs> the, the the joy of this is that, um, like I say, I'm not sure when you first encountered these movies, but um, they had been spoken of. I In the late 80s, early 90s, there were fanzines and there were odd movie magazines like Psychotronic and things like that. And and it's reading through things like that and picking up things on the bootleg VHS market where you would discover uh, not just, you know, the otter European stuff or the otter, otter Japanese or Chinese things, but uh, you would also discover things like this. Well, actually, these didn't pop up. These weren't easy to find, but you did occasionally read about them. And one of the most fascinating things is always to have some kind of legendary spoken of in hushed whispers kind of topic, you know, even uh, especially something where there's a character who appeared in multiple films and there were all these, you know, dark rumors about the man who, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the characters played by the man who wrote and directed the films. And uh, you, you, if you got the chance to see a photograph of me, realize this is one crazy looking some bitch. And so there's all this stuff about them before we ever got to see them. And then sometime in the mid nineties, I think it was about 94, but I can't remember. And I, I went looking for the specific information and the internet just went, not going to make it easy bastard. <laughs> so <laughs> sometime in the mid nineties, uh, uh, somebody in my circle of lunatic friends, uh, of, you know, movie fanatics and nutcases and people seeking out whatever strange thing might come down the pike film wise, got their hands on the films because something weird video put them out on VHS here in the United States. Yep. Uh, they cut some kind of deal and uh, got them subtitled and brought them over here. So of course a bunch of us crowd around television sets in the middle of the night, drink a lot of beer, alter ourselves imperceptibly or actually perceptively God, were we drunk? And, and <laughs> then we watch these things and let's be honest. There are things we're sitting here watching. We watched the first one. It's a black and white film. This is the film we're talking about tonight. And it's a black and white film that has a narrative about a man who, what would you refer to him as? Is he, is he the protagonist? Is he an antihero? Is he the villain of the film? He's kind of all three. But what stuns us is the thing that kind of, I guess, entranced us to begin with, which is, holy shit, this is a 1963 or 64 film. And... There's some really there's some really intense violence. The, some of the themes are are just crazy. I mean, they're right out in the open subject. There's right out in the open subject matter of things where you just you just aren't used to seeing them in a film of this vintage spoken of clearly and incredibly straightforward. And there's a certain level of um, 
kind of dread that comes over. So the reason I was asking about what you were thinking when we were like, okay, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk about this movie. Let's, you know, that means we're going to have to watch this and go back through it. Is the first thing that ran through my mind is I'm not going to make the girlfriend watch this with me. <laughs> yeah, this is not an easy film for your average viewer. You have to be either a really serious horror fanatic or a bit of a cinephile that is always seeking out that, well, what is that one weird unicorn of a film that no one really has, but everybody's talked about forever, particularly where we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's part of what made it fascinating when we first, you know, got our hands on these things on videotape and started watching them is that, you know, it's that shock of the new and then it's the just shock of the shocking and then there's the 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 feeling of seeing something that's intentionally done to cross barriers, to push envelopes, to press buttons. And of course that's exactly what he's doing. And for some of the things in this movie, it's very easy for a lot of us because um, I know uh, I, I, I'm, I was not raised a Catholic. And one of the, the big taboo breaking things in this movie is the, the Zedekai shown main character going out of his way to break specific Catholic taboos like eating meat on the holy day. And as someone who wasn't raised with those particular religious precepts in my life, it's very easy for me to observe that portion of the film and those taboos being broken from a distance and be kind of amused and impressed by the, uh, the, the, the lengths to which the character will go to piss off those people around him for no reason other than apparently just to piss them off. <laughs> so, yeah. He's uh, oh, intentionally subversive for that very point. Yeah. So, so those aspects of the film, I'm able to watch and go, okay, that's fascinating, but okay, whatever. And then he'll cut off a motherfucker's fingers with a broken bottle. <laughs> and suddenly it's like, oh, well, that's universal. I get that. That that makes me twinge. That's that's not nice. I like that he knew that there, there are so many different ways, and you can kind of see him marching through them in this film. There are different ways to make an audience uncomfortable. And he kind of tries to find a way to push each and every one of those buttons as often as he can. Even some of the subtler things. I mean, I feel like I may be getting ahead of us, but the the the, the joy of watching this man mess with people. And it's, I say joy, but it's not joy in the way that I... I enjoy watching this this guy be a bully and a sadist and a sick, just amoral or immoral or what? How? I mean, I, he seems to be just as would you call him a psychopath? He seems to be a, just a total psychopath. He doesn't seem to have real emotions at all. I think he might actually be schizophrenic because he has a very tentative grasp on what is real and what is not. And I think he might also have multiple personality disorder on top of that because. There are various versions of him that surfaced all by the name of Joe, but completely different people. And I think they were trying to show that like whenever he becomes angry, that other side emerges and that's when his eyes get all that bloodshot vision or what have you. So, you know, I, I have that it, feeling he's mentally ill. You may be right. And here's the thing. This is I know this is going to sound completely strange to say, but I had I had not watched this movie um, in oh, man well over twelve years at the very least. I was trying to remember the last time I I I saw the movie, and I did not remember that physical change when he goes berserk and becomes actually very physically violent. Those close ups of his eyes and those uh, the appearance of those uh, bloodshot 
I mean, they have to be contact lenses that he's putting in and they're doing, you know, a lap dissolve to get the effect. But I, what I, I, I didn't remember that at all. And that takes the movie in a slightly different direction where, yeah, you're right. Are we looking at a madman or are we looking at some kind of bizarre um, mental problem that manifests itself in some kind of Jekyll and Hyde situation? And I guess if you wanted to look at it from the religious aspect, because a lot of this, particularly the character of Coffin Joe, is viewed through the lens of devout Catholicism and almost a, a totalitarian state based upon religion. <laughs> you know, a total yeah. theocracy that was Brazil, you know? I mean, he dealt with a lot of censorship issues on the things that he wanted to do with the film. And we're talking, this is 1964, that he was doing a lot of the crazy, subversive very violent, very blaspheme-filled things that are in this movie. And he was still being subjected to censorship. And a lot of this film is taken out and thrown on the cutting room floor. It's not really until Embodiment of Evil that we really get to see the kind of films that he was intending to make, I would believe, which is it, why I think yeah. there's, so, that there's so much to it, because he was able to kind of correct all of that. And it's just so... It, there's, the passion is there. It, it, there's a lot of stuff with Marin's filmmaking where it feels like, hey, guys, let's just put on a show. We don't have the money. We don't have the the sets that other places do. But what we do have is this passion. And it's infectious. You can tell just from what he does as the character, it had to have gotten everybody else on the crew to keep them working on a film that <laughs> in the end is, what, 82 minutes? They had 13 reels, I think, to of film to shoot it on, and most films are produced with 80, so not yeah. a lot of double takes or you know extra takes or anything like that. And you know the man himself too. Now I don't know how true this is or if this is just part of the hyperbolic legend of of Coffin Joe, but I've heard that uh, Jose Marica Marens is actually a functional illiterate where he didn't even write scripts. He would convey what he wanted to somebody else who would write it down for the rest of the crew. Or they would just come up with stuff kind of on the spot, a lot of the speeches and things like that. So we're talking about a very eloquent man, like a very single-minded driving function of vision, and yet he can't write it down for other people to get it. He has to basically tell them by word of mouth what he wants to do. Yeah, I'm not sure about uh, his level of literacy, but I do know that his method of writing scripts was he hired someone who would transcribe everything, who would write everything down for him. And I'll be honest, I don't I, I've not heard that he uh, you know, was or is a functional illiterate, but it may that may have been true at a certain time. and It may still be. But it, it didn't strike me as odd to learn about his um, his method of, of, of writing because a, a lot of different writers use those kinds of methods because it allows them to to, to, to just freeform stuff, to just do that spitballing thing where you're just throwing out everything in sight and it's all getting written down and you can go back to it later and, you know, talk, you know, cross things out and toss out, you know, just throw things away. But you are you're, you're just letting that free flow get out there and onto the page. You know, you've got somebody who can, you know, can take dictation or just whatever and just get it all down, get it all down, get it all down. But that would that would add an even stranger level to, I guess, what I would refer to as um, kind of uh, the Coffin Joe or Zadikai Shon philosophy, which I, 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 we are clearly jumping into this because I'm just too excited to, to not do so. <laughs> so let's let, let, let's go ahead and jump just a little bit further, because. What it appears to me is, and that's one of the joys of discussing this movie, and especially the way it wraps up, is the idea that 
he seems to be espousing some kind of some form of kind of existentialism, kind of uh, emphasizing that uh, what's important is the individual, because the whole point of Coffin Joe, the whole reason the character is is doing a lot of the mad stuff that he's doing is he's obsessed with passing on his genetics, his bloodline, continuing his own bloodline. He wants a son and uh, he he wants uh, he wants to find a woman who can give him a child. And that is really the the driving force for every action that he takes. So essentially, if this is a form of existentialism, and if you don't know what existentialism is, it's kind of uh, it, it focuses on the, the the individual person as kind of the 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 free and responsible person uh, who determines their own fate, their own um, development through life. Everything that that happens to them is a is a is uh, it stems completely through every act of will that the person takes. Now, that's a fascinating philosophy that, of course, only meets uh, two or three brick walls that it can't pass through. But it's still a great way to look at uh, characters and the uh, ambition that comes with having the desire to reach a goal. And so what you have is this man who seems to embody a form of existentialism that posits that the only important thing is the continuation of your own bloodline. There are little sidetracks in this where he seems to be enjoying what he's doing just a little too much. <laughs> but <laughs> but that is the driving force of everything that he's doing. And the moment in the movie, and we really are jumping into this, the moment in the movie where he seems to possibly have some kind of mental break comes when... He thinks he secured, um, or at least begun the process of securing the passing on of his bloodline, and the woman in question, who he uh, has aims of impregnating, rather than even have that possibility play out in her life, commits suicide. And this seems to be the thing that just interrupts this thought in his head, where it's almost as if for the first time in his life, he's encountered the simple plain fact that you can't will everything you want into existence just by force. And that's a fascinating, that's a fascinating moment because it's almost as if whether he meant to or not, he's playing out a philosophical battle within the structure of this horror film. I would not put it past him. The man has a lot of deep thoughts and what he's trying to convey and what he's trying to produce whether intentional or not. I mean, if, if it is subconsciously put in there and people recognize it later, he's working out existential nightmare problems that everybody experiences. These questions that you ask yourself as to why are you here? What is your purpose? Why do you exist? And he's boiled it down to the most... Now, I want to say that he's just an atheist, but he's particularly far more nihilistic and empty than most atheists that I know. I think he's an atheist as viewed by like through the lens of someone who was raised devoutly Catholic his whole life in that culture. And that's what they all expect us to be like, you know, these kind of running around ready to eat a baby just to prove a point, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's it's, he's almost playing a caricature of what a Catholic, a devout Catholic would think of someone who is an atheist. Yes. And I think that when he's going about that, that course, when he's distilling down that particular viewpoint on somebody who doesn't believe in God and finds all of this ridiculous, 
of course they're going to do outrageous things purposely just to goad them. And I will freely admit there's parts of the things that Coffin Joe does in this movie that I myself would also do. I would totally be eating meat in front of a bunch of like Catholics <laughs> on a Friday just to prove a point that there's nothing wrong. Now, would I yeah. overstep my bounds and force another patron in a bar that is deeply concerned that he will go to hell by even taking a bite of the lamb shank? No, I'm not going to force that on him for two reasons. One, it's my lamb shake. Get the hell away. I I'm eating this lamb. And, yeah, I bought this. Yeah, and, and two, well, that's just rude. I'm not going to force you to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> so you won't be rude, but you will be obnoxious about about the taboo breaking, right? Well, I will be rude to the point where I will eat that in front of them and make fun of them for being afraid of my immortal soul for something as ridiculous as eating meat <laughs> on a Friday. But I'm not going to force them to think that they're going to go to hell because I force them to eat meat. That's that's where I draw the line personally. Hey, I, I like that. That's a good place to draw the line. Yeah. And you went you went and talked about uh, the card game where he cuts off the guy's fingers. The guy didn't want to give up his money because he knew Jose or Coffin Joe or Z was cheating him. And he didn't want to just flat out say you cheated. That's why you had four aces because it's impossible. But he wouldn't give up the cash because he just morally would not let that happen. Or he would he couldn't let it happen that he would get cheated, but he couldn't straight out say it. Because either way, he was going to get the same result where Z was going to attack him. <laughs> but there's an odd thing that, that in that sequence. There's a there's a very odd thing that he does this horrible thing and he does attack this man with a broken bottle and cut off two of his fingers. But then he states outright something that he'd said just before that, which is that he's impressed by bravery and brave men. And the fact that this man had the balls to stand up to him means I'll pay for the medical bills. So is there an honor in this character? Is he trying to to, to live by a, a code of honor that he perceives the world should respond to? Or is this just another way to zig when people think he's going to zag? I don't, it's, it's hard to know at times. I would say it's both. I think he does in fact live by a code of honor that is solely and only how he views the world. And what he decides is honorable, what he decides is right, he is espounding to everybody that will listen to him at any point. And the fact that that man stood up to him, I mean, he went to play cards just to see how far he could push these guys. And then when he cheated, the man stood up to him and he was impressed that the man actually stood up because the other two said nothing and folded. You know, they said, oh, you're truly a real man or something along those lines. I think the violence was just a point to prove that you will get hurt if you stand up to me. But because you stood up to me, I will do what I can to get you repaired for the damage that I've done. So I think it is like this weird, twisted, psychotic logic that he has where he's like, it, it just kind of, it's the complexity of the character where he looks at life through the lens of you must continue your bloodline. And the best way to do that is to be strong and then find yourself a strong breeding stock because he doesn't even look at women as other individuals or as other people. As a matter of fact, let me backtrack that. He doesn't look at anybody else as another human being or another person. He's completely devoid of any care of what other people want or feel or need. But when they react in a way that he feels a human being should be or he himself admires in what he thinks is his own traits that he likes, when he sees that in other people, he realizes, oh, they can be like me if they try and therefore becomes almost tender for a moment. Like he really did want to get that guy taken care of even though he's like, clearly it was an accident, you know, the bottle slipped and fell onto his fingers. 
(laughs) Forcefully. Yeah. yeah, It's so weird and psychotic. And you are literally watching just a crazy person perform these cruel acts on everyone around them in a very sadistic and just hate-filled manner and then completely backtrack it and walk the other direction and decide to be tender for them putting up with him all at once. Like, it's constantly throughout the whole films that he's like that. It's really bizarre. It, this is great because you're reminding me of, of a few notes that I made about this. And it is, let, let's let's state let's state for people that if you're unaware, this is this is a film that takes place in a uh, uh, what looks to be kind of a, a small Brazilian town. And uh, Zeta Kai Show, who uh, kind of roughly translated or Americanized is the character Coffin Joe. Zay or Joe is a rough equivalent from uh, Brazilian Portuguese to English. So if we call him Joe or we call him Zay or Z or whatever, it's 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 the same guy. Yeah. Uh, well, he's the he's this small town's undertaker. And uh, this guy really, truly has he has a, he's a, he's a, a nihilistic atheist. And doesn't really care to to that that people know this. Uh, he's he can he kind of fancied himself a bit of an outcast uh, on his own terms, but because of his position in the in the this little this little town as the undertaker, he has a a certain amount of power over these people because it's not apparently there is no other option. You know when you have you know to enter your beloved so he's the guy with a certain level of power within the place and he kind of uses it to his own ends now what you reminded me of was that there are a couple of points in the film and uh where he he's waiting around while people are uh at a funeral at the graveside and they're interring their beloved and their people are crying and they're sad about this and he goes up and he expresses his uh, condolences to the surviving people. And this is not just him lording it over someone because he's happy this person died or he had a hand in their death or anything like this. He does it at other times as well when it's just someone in the village who's passed away. And so we see him put on this false I wouldn't call it pious, but we see him put on this false front of uh, sharing people's grief. And it's very interesting to watch because these people have to know at some level that he's lying. He's full of shit. He doesn't give a fuck about this person that died and then he doesn't, he doesn't give a shit about them. But they accept it because of his position of power. And it's almost as if he dances a fine line. It's almost as if he's enjoying playing the game with them and knowing that they're not going to contradict him, that no one in that group is going to swing on him and go, you're a lying sack of shit. You don't give a fuck about my you know, dead relative. Get out of my face because he has these people under his thumb. They fear him. I also get the inclination too, that in some of the funerals, like particularly the very first one, he almost goes up to say his condolences in a way to offer comfort by way of getting them to stop the wailing and gnashing of teeth and the actual mourning that needs to be done to say goodbye to a loved one that's passed on. It feels like uh, the expression of that kind of emotion of genuine concern and loss and grief is not something that he can process. And I think it's kind of like his kryptonite. It bothers him that people care that way about other people because I don't think he's capable of it. And so he even says so later when he's talking to his wife about how he should charge extra to have to be there at the graveside, you know, for these people 
because of the crying and all of that. So I I don't know if it's necessarily him playing around with them or trying to play the game or putting on a false front. I think it's this bothers him not because it's another human being experiencing grief, but because he can't understand it and it kind of terrifies him. Yeah, you may be right. And it's in those conversations with his wife where we get a, a really good, clear picture of what of what his emotional state is and what he thinks of people in general. And it's and of course, it's a it's a pretty ugly picture. But I think it's fascinating that this one sounding board, this this kind of beat down wife that he has, um, it's because she's infertile that. He is convinced that, okay, since my wife can't give me a child and one has to imagine that he married her with the, you know, with the intent that this is, this is where, this is the person who's going to give me the child so I can continue my bloodline. And one wonders, you know, how long they've been married. We don't really get a sense of, and I don't, I don't think it's spelled out in the dialogue of how long they've been married and how long it took before they discovered that they weren't going to be able to have children. But at this point in the movie, at this point in the story in these characters' lives, we 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 know this. This is something that is acknowledged. Both of them know it. And so <laughs> as soon as you know that and you know what his desires are, you can almost hear the clock ticking right then. <laughs> well, when does he get rid of when does he get rid of the wife? Because this is not a character who seems to be I mean he's he's obviously well, the wife at the beginning of the movie, the wife already knows he's like going out and, and looking for other women. And she actually suspects that he's already got us, you know, somebody on the side. Um, and the movie never really answers that question. Um, I don't think I, I, you know, honestly, I don't think he did. I think he was still hunting. The reason he was going out at night was trying to talk to other people and trying to find, you know, the, the next victim, I'm sorry, a uh, woman in his life. And he's just hunting for, you know, he's, he's hunting for, um, the, the, the perfect vessel for his seed as you know, it, to be blunt. And so the wife is right in one, one regard, but she's wrong in that, uh, he's not just out there humping everything in sight. I think that actually as weird as this may sound, and it's never spelled out, but I think that he wouldn't do that, that he actually would not just go out and have sex with just whoever or whenever because he sees that as, you know, casting his seed into, you know, you know, uh, poisoned earth, perhaps. He would not want to put himself in the position of fathering or you know, having his bloodline continue with something that he does not consider to be correct or, or, or right. Well, the second film definitely takes that hypothesis to a whole new level. And this night I'll possess your corpse. He actually puts women through all of these different tests to prove their worthiness of carrying his child. And I think he just becomes obsessed with, uh, is it Tenzian is how her name is pronounced, which is Antonio's uh, future bride. I think they're just Ter dating. Teres Terezinia or Terezinia. something like that. Okay. Yeah. yeah it, it, it looks like a name that would translate, you know, a rough equivalent in English might be Teresa, but I'm not sure. Right. Now, he becomes obsessed with her and is for the general main part of the film, at least from the beginning. And even though this Antonio person is supposed to be his best friend. Now, I don't know if this was lost due to the censorship that we kind of mentioned earlier or not, but I had heard somewhere in one of the interviews on the various discs that I have for the Coffin Joe sets and things like that, where uh, Marins had actually mentioned that Z was like a veteran of either the First or Second World War. I can't remember what. Second. 
okay. second. Yeah, and when he came back, he had found out that his current wife had already cheated on him, which is what set him off on this crazy route of just being, you know, looking for a someone to be the person to carry his heir and continue his bloodline, but also his general mistrust of not only women, but just human beings in in all, you know, and I I don't know if maybe the, the fact that he was in the war and what he may have seen there, there's part of what drove him to this point where he lost all hope and faith in humanity and then coming home to what he thought would be the one pure thing he would still have that would be his wife and finding out that she supposedly cheated on him is what drove him over the edge. I, you know, you think that stuff would be in there, but maybe the censors took that out because, you know, you can't have a marriage <laughs> of a, you can't have a person who is a devout Catholic in a marriage actually end up cheating because that, that shouldn't happen or whatever the reason <laughs> is. It's so hard to tell because I mean, the film. Well, that's just it. I, I think that the version that, of the film that we can see these days, now I'm not positive, but I think this is pretty much the film as he put it together originally, at least I think. But I, it is, I mean, because, I mean, uh, unless you know something different, I think this the 82-minute cut is the film as he cut it together originally. I mean, because there, there's that whole story about how uh, they lied to the the censors and said that they'd lost the negative so that all the edits, all the cuts that were being done were being done to prints. Yeah, I think that might be the case. And I don't know if, and I think he actually may have lost some of the stuff because they don't really have a solid print of this. I mean, that's why a lot of the releases are going to be solely DVD except for embodiment of evil. That's the the best elements that they could find. And what's left over is going to look its best on DVD. Unfortunately, even the latest uh, synapse release, which is, probably the best that either of the two first the first two films have ever looked was just solely dvd was for that purpose well one of the things you you brought up is although you'd be hard-pressed to find any any kind of uh relation in this film any kind of backstory about uh zay uh what is clear is that if if he's built this backstory for the character which involves him being a veteran of world war ii that's not a shock or a surprise because um the, the the Second World War really kind of hangs heavy over the generation that he's a part of to begin with. I mean, the man was born in what was it like the 1936, so born between the wars. You know, he grows up during that time when you know, world you know the world Second World War is ongoing. And I think what he's referencing, and this is another thing where you'd love to know. There, there's so many questions I'd love to be able to ask the man, and I mean, as of today, he's still alive. So why doesn't someone do this? But <laughs> the, the the real question becomes. Uh, I'm I'm well aware of the history of the first real mechanized war did to the generation that fought the first world world war. That was a horrendous that 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 was a truly horrendous event. Not just the numbers of people that died, but the ways in which they died. This hum, this was you know, the first mechanized war, and it was uh, you know this giant. It was described as a meat grinder because there was so many munitions used and so much just absolute swaths of carnage, um, just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people dying week in and week out for months and years on end. And then when in the uh, so that that generation really never recovered there's a reason that they were known as the lost generation and not it's not just because so many of them died it's that when you cram that much trauma onto even the survivors it ripples out amongst the entire population because even if you only know about it 
or experience it through your connections with those people who do survive, it can't help but affect you. And so when the Second World War came along, a lot of the same rules applied. They put a lot of different things in place legally to keep some of the more horrific things from happening that went down in that first mechanized war. So, yeah, not as many people get gassed on the battlefield, but people are still just dying in droves, and there are these horrendous almost unintelligible ways of just sudden death. PTSD has been something throughout history. You know, violent survivors have always had this problem and it's only in the 20th century. We've given it a, a firm name, but the reason he might've wanted to link this character to the mechanized death and the kind of traumatic stress that would, you know, that would push people into a certain position is that it gives that character a background that shows him in a position to have seen huge amounts of kind of, for lack of a better term, mind-altering death. And I kind of wonder if it would have given just a line or two, even in this film, might have given this character a kind of even darker aspect because his, let's say he, he let's say he fought in World War II. If he did and he survived, his reaction to it was not one that we can we can kind of praise but his reaction to it is to kind of you know turn into the skid and just see the world as if death were not just right around the corner or something imperceptible that will creep up on you and take you away from anything and everything but death is everything and so the only thing that matters is just to concentrate down on finding a way to make sure that you pass on your essence to the next generation, no matter what. If that's the lesson this character learned from fighting in the Second World War, that's that makes him even darker and more disturbing because he didn't learn the, the kind of uplifting things that some soldiers were able to pull from it, which is that even, you know, even in the darkest moments of your life, those people around you are the ones that you count on to, to pull you out of a hole, to help you, to defend you, to, to, to watch your back and, and, and help protect you and get you through this. His learned lesson is fuck everybody else and everything else. The only thing that matters is that I pass on my essence to another generation. Yeah, you kind of went the route of Elliot Spencer from uh, Hellraiser, <laughs> who became Pinhead. Uh, yeah. The darkness got into him. I think he liked killing. If that's the case, if he was in one of these world wars, that he liked the killing. He liked harming people. He got too good at what he did. And that violent side of him where the blood comes out, you know, with the eyeballs getting all bloodshot and everything... While that works perfectly fine on the battlefield to keep you surviving and to continue your bloodline, you can't really function in a normal society when the slightest insult could possibly cause you to stab off two fingers of a person with a bottle, you know? Yeah, exactly. He has this, he has this very weird dichotomy in him where he wants humanity to survive, but only in his guise, almost, and that's his main obsession. And if people can't get with his program and survive in the way that he is attempting, then they don't deserve to survive at all, almost. And it's very basic. It's very animalistic. And I mean, that's how the animal kingdom works. You continue. You have that drive to breed, not because of anything other than that's just part of your genetic makeup of what makes you a living, breathing being. You're, you have to procreate. And that's that. And he's almost stripping away everything about humanity that makes you human 
and getting down to the most animalistic drives and urges, almost as if the things that he was seeing on the battlefield and what he was actually seeing with the way that, you know, people were being considered subpar with the genetics and all of that kind of stuff that the Nazis were doing with the Jews and everybody else that wasn't like their, you know, ideal of what a human should be. It's almost like all this stuff got mixed together in his brain and mixed up with the PTSD that he clearly is suffering from now if we're going to just diagnose him. I think that's what is what his triggers are. And he's just so, he's a broken man, but he's convinced that he's the only one that has it together and he's right about everything and everyone else is wrong. But he clearly hallucinates on a regular basis. He clearly has visions of things that aren't there. And it's almost as if his mind is trying to work out the things that he's done and it's it's almost like there's a part of him that feels guilt there's still a part of him that humanly feels remorse for what he's done but the only way that he can deal with it is by manifesting it as these strange ghosts and hauntings and visions of uh afterlife that he doesn't even believe in which is again a very catholic way of looking at atheists like deep down we're just angry at god and that's why we don't believe <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I know it. That is an extraordinarily Catholic. It's almost impossible to separate this this villainous character, this this cruel, vicious person from the the religious background, the kind of religious dogma that creates the the culture that he's rebelling against. There's no way to to view him. In other words, I'm pretty sure that a Jewish background would not have created this guy. (laughs) <laughs> it takes it takes a concerted level of of uh, ritual and ceremony and a kind of uh, building of an entire uh, society around this particular strain of religion. Um, there's a <laughs> there was something I wish I could remember who said this so I could so I could a get the quote right and b credit it. But there's a you know, Catholicism moved into South America and Central America um, as quickly as they possibly could. They became, they became really good missionaries, and they they ran their asses in there just as soon as they could, and converted the converted the heathen and pagan just as fast as they possibly could. And turned pretty much that entire area into one large swath of Catholicism. And the thing about that is that it allowed an entire well, you know, multiple cultures, of course, but it, it, it allowed these these cultures to grow up as almost a bizarre little petri dish, an experiment. And what if you didn't let the religion grow out of the society, but you let the religion create a society or warp the society or twist the society? And I think that whether he meant to or not, there is a little bit of a um, commentary from uh, Mr. Marins about the whole idea of what this particular strain of religion does to the underlying persona of a country, the persona of a, and he's using this small town as a kind of a, uh, a case in point. So if, and this is a big if, if, Coffin Joe is the is the fly in the ointment, the 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 one evil thing in this this town that, around which all evil th- you know, and from him all these evil things kind of emanate or at least touch on. Uh, the question becomes: If he's the the center of all the evil and he's created by the religion, 
do all those things emanate? In other words, do do all of them have a connection to him because he's kind of the lodestone and everything kind of connects or touches upon him and and kind of drifts off from him? Or, and this might be an argument that you would hear from the pulpit, is so much of the inherent evil of the area concentrated in one person in one spot that much like those religions try to do is they, they try to 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 uh, give you the idea. They try to postulate that it is possible for you to to suppress those things that part of the part of the ritualistic way of doing things is to find a way to 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 control those animalistic urges to control those uh, those uh, darker elements of your own self. And the first thing that you have to do is, of course, you have to be able to recognize it. Well, how perfect is it for this town that, you know, the most evil man on the planet Earth is situated right there and very easy to spot. And boy, my God, isn't it obvious? And it's almost as if the religion that spawned this evil, vicious man, or at least built the society in which he feels he that he feels he has to rebel against can then use him as the perfect springboard to say, see, we were right. I think you got it right there. I think you've kind of nailed it. And again, whether or not this was a subconscious thing or an intentional thing that Marin's actually did, the town that Z lives in is a microcosm of his whole entire country. And what he represents is a movement away from what should be the foundations as far as the theocracy that runs this country believes in what it should be. All these things that they hold up to as far as what is good and what is right and the rebellion that would be coming would be from his generation who have seen to quote once again elliot spencer god fail that day you know on the battlefield people like people like z would have seen that where your way doesn't work this isn't how life is going to be and it's never going to be all happy and cheerful and roses just because we believe and we don't eat meat on a friday and he almost flies (laughs) in the face of that and if you look at it from that perspective of he's one person in one town, but how many other towns have a Z? How many other parts of Brazil have people that are like this that are starting to turn away? And religions need that adversary. You have to have that other. You have to have that blame yes. that you can exactly. put on something else. And you you sometimes will find an inanimate thing where they create like a devil or a fallen angel. I mean, every religion has that belief where everything would be peachy keen and hunky dory and wonderful. And everything would be great if you just follow this faith, but there's always this other, there's always this adversary, this, this Satan, whatever you want to call it, that is luring people away and saying, no, this isn't how it's supposed to be. You're an animal. You know, you, you need to, you need to fight. You need to fuck. You need to attack. You need to, you need to just (laughs) revel in your filth and your shame because that's what makes you an animalistic being. And Z is the embodiment of all of that. Like every single disgusting hate filled thing that someone would think about the other, that is not a part of their faith and their religion. Z not only embodies in this microcosm in the film, but revels in it as a human being that he is this person and he will gratefully cause this kind of pain and this torment and tempt people away and try and force them to think differently because that's who he is because he doesn't see their faith. And again, it's, it's that way people view him uh, through that lens of, of, of that faith. And I think he's embodying that. And that, that's why the last film is called embodiment of evil, because everything that people accuse 
that other that goes against their faith of being, not only does he embody it, he relishes being it. He loves being that thing. And the only goal that he has is to create little versions of himself to make sure that this style of living goes on. That's his whole drive. And it's horrifying and yet admirable at the same time because he is not a good person. You should not look up to anything he does at all. But at the same time, because he's rebelling and because he's just being himself, he is like an anti-hero, but he is the worst kind of person to look in that way and think, you know, wow, at least he's fighting. <laughs> it's horrible to think that way, but yeah. it makes you want to like him. He makes you want to be like, yes, you're in the right here. No, no, you just raped that woman. You're a horrible person. I hate you. <laughs> well, you're reminding me of one of my, okay, it's one of my favorite things that tends to crop up in, uh, and uh, bear with me here, but it tends to crop up most clearly in a lot of Italian Westerns and a lot of spaghetti Westerns, which center around an anti-hero. In other words, your main character, your protagonist is someone who, uh, the, you know, it's that, it's that wonderful mystery of someone who's, who came in late and is not really understanding what's happening, which is okay. Well, clearly the movie is about this character because he's in every scene. Um, but he's, really not a nice person and he's doing absolutely horrible things. Well, yeah, okay. He's the anti-hero. He's doing all these horrible things. And the point of it is, well, the point of it is to entertain the hell out of you. <laughs> and if you're doing hor <laughs> and if you're doing horrible things, well, guess what? You know, you're being pretty damned entertaining, but the point of it is, as far as the narrative is concerned, is to either a provide you with, okay, a bad example. See, that's a terrible thing. See him attacking and murdering these people, uh, raping that woman. He's a not nice person and we don't want to be not nice people. Right. But then he's also in these spaghetti Westerns and I swear, bear with me on this, <laughs> he, but he's also the person who, although a bad person and often in these movies, will just completely own up to not being someone who is good and that should be admired. But he's the person who helps the obviously better people to fend off even worse individuals. So you have something along the lines of, uh, my favorite example is my favorite, my, my favorite example of something like this, something like this isn't even a spaghetti Western. It's a, it's, it's an American Western, which is high plains drifter, which is you have this, character who turns out to, you know, spoiler alert, to really just be a vengeful ghost, <laughs> come into this town, you know, rape a woman, humiliate everybody in town, um, do whatever the hell he wants, and then be employed by the town to stave off a, a worse evil, something that they hideously fear. And so you're accepting into your bosom, bear with me here, <laughs> a, re a really, really, really bad thing. Because you fear something else is out there that's worse. So what is it that might put that kind of thinking? What, 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 that's, a, that, that's the kind of thing where you're, you're sitting and you're weighing bad. You're not sitting there and pretending that there's a good and there's an evil. You know damn good and well that the person in front of you is not good. But your fear is what's going to make you clutch this, this viper to your bosom because, you know, maybe something worse is coming and this viper might be able to hold him off. So here's the question. If 
that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. If those are the types of stories that we're talking about, if we call, if we say this small town in World War II and the, the, the society and the culture that it stems from created this person, is it necessary from the point of view of society to create people like this so that it, def- it, it can use them, like in, say, a war, to defend itself from a bigger evil. In other words, are we, if we're in that society, are we complicit in the creation of this kind of evil? Must it exist for the better elements of the society to also continue? Do we have to have something so despicable, so awful that we often have to wall it off and possibly even kill it to use against something else we fear? And then, of course, to continue this along, what is it that is the what what causes the fear? What is the purveyor of the stories that tell you that there's a bigger thing to fear out there beyond what you know tangibly right here and now. And that would, of course, be the religion that built the system in the first place. In other words, your actions here in this tangible plane are the things, the things that you do here determine whether or not you have a good or a bad life in the, you know, when, when you die. Is everything that this society sets up by the use, well, either by the use of religion or as you religion using society, you flip that coin for yourself if you feel the if you feel the need. <laughs> Is it building this because it's a fantastic example to scare the rubes to do the right thing or to, I don't know, help build the new cathedral or whatever it may be, or essentially what I'm trying to find is where does where is the mouth of the snake and where is the tail? Which end is up? It which what what came first, the chicken or the egg? And of course, being well, not being religious people, I know that I, 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 I you may fall on this end of the fence as well. But what I tend to fall on is fear is universal. Fear is 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 the most basic thing in the world, and as long as you can keep a person fearful, you can tell them anything and they will believe you. They will act on any ridiculous statement that you give them as long as you keep them afraid. So, yeah, look by at the current cr- state of politics. That's exactly what's happening. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> let's see. Let's let, let's prime millions upon millions of people to be constantly afraid and therefore constantly fear. You know, if you're constantly fearful and angry, and then you know, give them a nice a, a nice boogeyman to hate. You know, let's get our you know let's get our five minute hate on every day so that we we feel really good about ourselves and we can hold ourselves up as the as the good people and then point to the bad people. You know, we're just positing another religion, another religion, to be honest. So does this are these systems built so that do they have to be this simple? Do we have to have the boogeyman to make ourselves? Is it do we do we need it to motivate ourselves? Do we need does the society need it to push the population to do the things that are necessary? Because sometimes fear is a good thing. Fear can be used for good purposes, but too often fear grows 
and fear doesn't actually fear is the hardest thing in the world to rein in because you can calm down periodically, but there's always a background fear. And boy, I know I'm off in the weeds here, but <laughs> there's a there's a certain desire within structures like this to create a boogeyman so that you can point at and go, that's the bad example. Don't do that. Don't be that. You know, that's how you raise kids, man. You you give them simple narratives because they can't understand complicated ones. You try to get you try to get nuanced with a kid and he just wants a French fry. Come on, man. Let's 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 be simple here. Well, if you want to bring that back too, like the systems that we've created all of the various religions, the politics, the government, the governments that we build, everything that we as human beings accomplish in that way of trying to teach each other what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable in our various pockets of our societies because of our religious beliefs or political beliefs or everything, all of these systems that we build to govern each other and control each other are completely useless to somebody like Z. All Z sees is animalistic drives, and he recognizes them, and that's how he lives his life. So he not only stands against everything about the systems that we put in place, whether it's religion or politics and all that stuff, he not only is an adversary to that, he's also an adversary to anything other than human beings are animals, and we should start behaving like animals once again. Because in the animal kingdom murdering a potential rival for an optimum mate is not even a thing. It's not even something that is even considered a problem. Forcing yourself on a mate is not even something that the animal world really sees as a problem. It's just continuing the bloodline. And he operates on that level completely opposite of everything that is human. And yet he's still a human being. And I think that's where he becomes even more terrifying and even more adverse is because he lacks even the basic functions of humanity in his logic and in his actions. But because he's still a human being, somewhere in his mind, subconsciously, these horrible things that he's doing are weighing on him. And that guilt manifests itself in those forms of his hallucinations, or at least that's how I see it. So everything that we've just been discussing and how we got really deep into, you know, humanity as a whole, whether it's whatever system of control that we end up putting on ourselves and on other people and the lines that we put on ourselves saying, well, this is obviously you don't cross that. You don't kill. You don't rape. You don't, you know, murder a, a person's offspring because, you know, you want to actually have that person as your mate. All the things that the animal kingdom does. How often do bears, first of all, just eat a cub whenever they pick a new mate, <laughs> you know, just to continue their own bloodline? Well, hell. Well, to be fair, man, bear cubs are tasty. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, they're really good. So, Well, and the human penis is actually designed to pump out other sperm to get rid of rivals to continue our own genetics. It's built into us, and we deny it because we have things like empathy. We have things like understanding. We have sentience that lets us know who we are. And while animals have that to a certain degree and people will try and put humanistic characteristics on animals, they don't have those things that we have. I don't think an animal genuinely feels guilty for something when it knows it did something wrong. It, no. It may show remorse whenever you're yelling at it for, like, you know, shitting on the rug or whatever, but <laughs> it honestly yes. didn't know that it wasn't supposed to do that. It just had to go. 
And that's where Coffin Joe lives is I just shit on your rug and I feel nothing about it. <laughs> but here's an interesting thing. When he decides to to murder his wife, because th- this he sees this as his first step to clearing the pathway for him to to have a woman who can actually bury him a child. Uh, the glee with which he murders this woman, uh, he's found a way to kill her that will allow him to get away with it, which is to have her uh, bitten by a poisonous spider. And that scene, you see him reveling in the joy of watching this woman be tortured by having this poisonous spider crawl all over her body and then kill her. And the, 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 first of all, of course, that's a, that's evidence of, you know, a a level of psychosis that goes so deep that it's almost, um, it's terrifying to consider that this is a person who's rational enough to carry on a life outside of this situation. I mean, (laughs) normally you would think a person doing something of this nature wouldn't be able to function as a normal human being for God's sake. I mean, good Lord, he's, 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 he's semi-orgasmic as he (laughs) watches this, this take place. You know, part of that can be chalked up to him, um, wanting to, to emphasize, uh, this man's joy in ridding himself of something that he perceives as just in his way. But another part of it, and, and maybe part of it is also the perception from his point of view that he's going to be able to do this and get away with it because this is, this is not something that can, that will be end up being blamed on him. But I would also like to point out that another part of it that is only given just a little bit of notice within the, the body of the film. But if you pay attention, he's killing her on one of the high holy days of the Catholic church. Oh yeah, that's intentional. Yeah, yeah. And the 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 I I I wanted so much to to have just a little bit more catholic knowledge about what you know it it does it, it, it does it imbue a death with some kind of significance to take you know if it takes place on this particular holy day or some other particular holy day or anything like that if 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 nothing else i can tell you right now the catholic church has got a lot of damned holy days and saint days i got the the, the <laughs> calendar's dotted with them you almost you almost can't hit a you can you, you can't throw a dart at a damn calendar without hitting one or two of them and so I just wonder if it would seem impossible, you know, like trying to, you know, trying to find a day to, for, for grandma to die so that she doesn't fall on the wrong holy day. I don't know. <laughs> but the um, the joy he takes, I, it, it, there's a there's a part of me that wonders if, if part of it is that he's doing it on that particular day. If, if it's just another thumb in the eye to the, to the, the overarching authority, the, that he's, he so joyfully hates and, and wants to, to, to denigrate at every turn. I think he's going out of his way to prove that there can be no God, because if he can do such a thing on a high holy day and not only get away with it, legally speaking, where they can't prove that he murdered this person, but also is doing it specifically to say, where's your God now, essentially? Of course he's going to do it that way. He revels in the fact I'm that sorry, he I'm sorry, up. I just got completely distracted. <laughs> the way you said that, suddenly I just heard Edward G. Robinson. Where's your God now? Where's your God now, buddy? Yeah, see? Nobody's coming to help you out now, are yeah. they? Yeah, if there was a Jesus, if there was a Jesus with some hands of Christ, he'd come and take that thing, swat it away, wouldn't he? But no. It's, you almost see something very similar to this later and, and handled very badly, but I, I hate to do it, but in The Devil's Rejects, where you have Otis 
standing over top of the guy who basically is going to pray to try and save his life. And Otis just stands there and says, you pray, you pray your hardest to God to stop me from what I'm about to do right now, almost as a way to establish that not only is Otis more powerful than that God, but Otis's belief in Satan is more powerful and he's going to get to do what he wants to do regardless. And that's exactly what Z's doing. The things that he does are specifically because he's thumbing his nose not only as authority at governments that are established that go along with the religion, but also proving that there is no recourse for what he is doing. There is no true punishment for any of the sins that he's committing. And while everybody else is sitting terrified of eating meat on a Friday, he's going to wantonly do it out in the public to show everyone what they're doing has no recourse. There's no purpose for it. There's no reason for them to be afraid. And it's just a logical extension that he would murder his wife on a high holy day or that he would purposely do the things that he's been warned that he shouldn't do because he feels there's no reason to fear and he's going to show them all. Yeah, well, yeah, clearly. And and if everything in this film, all the actions that Zay takes, that Joe takes, are uh, meant to be a spit in the eye to, you know, Brazilian Brazilian society and Catholic Catholic teachings, it, it like I say, it's it's fun to pick them apart and play with them, but he's not just, and, and I think this is this is a good thing to point out because he's not just messing with the Catholic Church, and he's not just messing with kind of the society as he finds it. He's messing with the older kind of uh, things that are built out of the pre-existing stuff that existed in that country before Catholicism came along and converted everybody. He's also playing around, and he does it pointedly, because the movie starts. Remember the, the the film starts with two prelude kind of warning sequences, right? The movie starts with uh, Marin's himself as Coffin Joe talking directly to the camera and essentially saying, "I'm about to come fuck with you." You know, not <laughs> not, not 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 in so many words, but you know what I mean. Yeah, the speech then, about how uh, life is the beginning of death, death is the end of existence, and the only thing to continue existence is to continue the bloodline to keep as many living people that have your genetic code as possible. Yeah. Now take, so, so take that little thing from him as Satan speaking directly to you. Right. <laughs> and then before we get to the, before we get to the body of the film, we also have the gypsy woman, the witch doing kind of the same thing. Hey, you might not want to watch this film. It's pretty horrifying and it's pretty terrifying. And if you're going to do it, well, it's up to you, but here you go, which, you know, does a couple of things. One, it harkens back to that wonderful prelude, the original Universal Dracula, where it's kind of a warning to you that, hey, you know, you bought your ticket, but here's your chance to walk out of here if this is going to be too much for you. But, you know, don't 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 come crying to us after the fact. It's so it's kind of a throwback to that. But it's also a nod to older belief systems. And the film itself takes you there as well, because we have that scene where uh, Joe's friend and I use friend in quotes, Antonio. <laughs> Because Antonio thinks he's his friend, but Joe doesn't really. But Antonio, uh, with his his uh, his girlfriend, soon his fiance, really, who Joe, of course, kind of openly covets, uh, is invited by Antonio to go with the two of them to have their fortunes told by that very same witch, and that looks to me like a nod to all the 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 folklore, the kind of magic and mysticism that existed in Brazil, you know, long before Catholicism came along, and of course, you know. Like all good good religions who have the have the desire to actually want to uh, convert, absorb, and move forward, all those things got kind of 
pulled into the version of religion that is used by the Catholics in Brazil. And so that stuff exists alongside the Catholic traditions and kind of morphs and, and moves, you know, kind of intertwines with it. And so we have this scene with the gypsy where the, the she's a fortune teller and the, of course, this soon to be married couple are told, uh, you know, actually two are never going to get married. Um, and honestly, death is near. <laughs> and so, um, that's, you know, that's pleasant. Although she's very nice. She doesn't charge them because she, <laughs> she, she doesn't charge them because, well, you know, when I find out that you're going to die, I try not to take the money from you. So she says the spirit um, world actually demands it, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So this is the point where, I mean, cause he, he, it's almost as if at the beginning of the film, he's saying, Hey, there's, there are two, you know, um, mythical structures that are within the society that I live in. And here's the warning from both of them at the beginning of the film. And then as the film goes on, we're going to, we're going to see elements of both of them and you're going to see both of them kind of, uh, not really be much help as other than kind of a Cassandra standing there going, yeah, 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 you're going to die. This is not going to go well and it's going to be unpleasant and there's people that's going to lose fingers and just all kinds of <laughs> shit's going to happen. <laughs> so the desire of, of, um, Jose uh, Mojica Marins to bring all of this in and to kind of try to just stuff as much into this narrative as he can. He, he's not just trying to, th you know, he's not just trying to stick a thumb in, in the eye of all of this stuff. He's trying to, it, it's almost like he's trying to, uh, to present it all so that after the fact, people can't say, well, you know what you didn't talk about is this. <laughs> he's trying to throw it all in there so that he can say, no, 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 the gypsy woman's about that. And, and then you've got, you know, this, this element's about that. And this is about that. This is about that. He doesn't, it, it's almost as if he didn't want us to leave any stone unturned in his desire to make sure that he kind of had his base. You know, he, he wants to cover the, all, all the bases so that if anybody has any questions later on, he's got a scene in a movie he can point to and go, no, no, no. I talked about that right there. And, um, Joe, I love that. I love his response to the gypsy woman is he, ha he, he, he acts like he sat on a fucking tack, man. He does not respond well to this gypsy woman. And he, I mean, he calls her a fraud and he, he just kind of goes berserk and he, and he, of course his stated reason, which I think is pretty, pre pretty neat, but it's also, it also seems a little like bullshit is, you know, he does, you know, he, he purports to not believe in any of this supernatural BS. You know, he, he, he lumps this in with the Catholicism of these people that these two people who are, you know, going to the fortune teller in the first place profess to uh, believe and so he lumps it all together and just, you know, calls it a hoax and all this, that, and the other. And of course she warns him, the gypsy woman warns, warns him not to mock, mock supernatural forces because, you know, you can end up paying the price for, for not having the proper respect for this stuff. Now, of course, all of this fits very comfortably within the structure of a supernatural horror film. Of course, of course, of course, all the way through to the end. This is the kind of stuff. This is, uh, oh, what's the, what's the character from Friday the 13th? I'm blanking now. The, uh, the, uh, the, the doomsayer character, the, uh, crazy the, crazy, the crazy Ralph, every, you know, most of these films have one version or another, a crazy Ralph where it's, you know, the, the doomsayer standing beside the road, you know, and it, you know, it's, it's, it all, it goes all the way back to Shakespeare, Be, you know, beware the Ides of March and stuff like that. So what we have is, uh, <laughs> Am I the first person to link Friday the 13th and Shakespeare? I'm not sure. Uh, You're certainly no. the first one to link Friday the 13th and Shakespeare while talking about Coffin Joe. 
you know, you may be right. Ooh, man, I, I, if, if I'm not on cocaine, somebody needs to tell me what I am on. Anyway, the uh, joy of watching these things play and rub up against each other and him equating Catholicism and the, the gypsy fortune telling stuff and just railing against it. Once again, I just have to point out, why the hell does Antonio think this guy's his friend? I can't figure it out. <laughs> I mean, he, he's doing everything but putting his hand up his fiance's dress while he's standing there, and I can't dope this out. But um, I wanted to know, did, did you, I mean, because uh, we, we don't, we, we're not from that background. We don't, you know, I, neither, neither of us have ever, have ever been to Brazil, unless you've got a, a really interesting story to tell. Um <laughs> But so, so, you know, we're not we're not part of this culture. We're definitely outsiders looking into this through a very, very, very warped window. But there are a lot of these things that are just completely universal. And it's very easy to, um, you know, there are no one to ones from our culture to that culture. But there's some things that that carry over and that are very obvious. And he's drawing, you know, he's 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 drawing these things in broad strokes to begin with, because what he's trying to do is he's trying to. Um, he's trying to do very large things. He's, he's, it's, it's, it's a Grimm's fairy tale version of, of, uh, spelling out philosophical ideas and, and, uh, telling a, a an Uga Booga story in a way that is, uh, going to reach the largest audience humanly possible because, you know, let's, let's, let's not, let's not pretend that this guy's not got one eye on making a career for himself. Of course he does. And of course he did, but, the fact that he's got all of these little bits and pieces and he's he's covering all these bases is a beautiful thing because the narrative still flows. There's there 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 are all these things. Every every scene seems to build. There's very little there's very little fat on this story and every piece, although, you know, a little a little scary. I mean, there are things in this that that are off putting and he knows they're off putting like the and he play like he even plays some of them a second time he'll put he put them like under the credits and things like that the scene where he's actually slapping the uh the woman who's his wife uh and it looks like he's actually slapping the actress uh he puts that under the credits i mean he like that's near the beginning of the film before you even see it as part of the structure of the story and it's shocking things like that where he's wanting to unsettle you to a certain degree like I say, Antonio cannot be completely the clueless putz that he seems to be. One wonders at what point. Well, I, here's the thing: Why do you think this is this is a big this is a big puzzle for me? What what, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did uh, did Joe decide he needed somebody to talk to, and therefore has a friend named Antonio, or? Did he spot Antonio with the hot chick that he's he thinks is attractive and he like to keep his keep his options open and therefore befriended Antonio? And you know, in the in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter. But I kind of want to know because it casts if if he needed somebody to talk to, that's a strange vulnerability for this character, you know. Well, he is uh, very much a misanthropic human being, but at the same time, he does crave almost like a sounding board to prove himself against, which is why he goes to the bar and just espounds his beliefs all over people and just kind of vomits it out. He wants a sounding board. He wants somebody that he can bounce the stuff off of. And if we're going to believe that maybe he came from World War II, perhaps he and Antonio being from the same village ended up in the same battalion or crew or whatever it was, and 
since they were friends and more, maybe they were friends in, you know, his hometown again when he came back. Perhaps that's how it is if it became that way. We don't really know. It never really shows you. Now, would I put it past Coffin Joe to befriend a man just in order to try and woo away his fiance? Not at all. That is the, that's still within his purview of something that he would do, without a doubt. And it was actually the scenes that you were talking about at the beginning that's over top of the credits, all the violence that's in the film. The slapping around is actually the rape scene whenever he actually does end up raping uh, Terezin or Tenzir or however oh, yeah, yeah. How it's pronounced. And the other things that are happening, like the eye gouges and things like that, I think that serves in the credits as a third warning of, okay, you've been told that your mortal soul is in danger from watching this filth I'm about to put on screen. Now your stomach is also in danger of emptying its contents because this is about what you're about to see. Yeah. That's how I look at it. Like, he's just like, okay, everything up front. Now, if you're all still in after this, here's my story (laughs) that he ties it all together with. And I really like the interesting idea that you brought up too about the, uh, I I don't think it's Santeria in Brazil, but it's, it's a form of that where it's like a voodoo or, and or ancient uh, multiple gods based religion that got folded in with bringing in the saints and things like that. I know every one of these cultures has their own. I think it's, it's like Houdon in some places as well as what it's referred to as. And, um, can, uh, can Domi or Dombi can, can Dombi, I think is what it is. That might be in the Brazilian, uh, I don't don't know, man, you're, you're, you're definitely into an area that I'm not, that I'm not comfortable (laughs) with. I have no idea. All right. But it, it all basically stems from the same thing. There were these ancient religions practice that all similarly is kind of based somewhat in Africa for like the voodoo sort of stuff. And then the slaves would bring them over into the ships to the various places that they would end up being settled. It would basically incorporate things from the Catholicism or the local lore and those beliefs. And that's how all these different versions of it kind of moved out from there. And Brazil, that, that witch or that gypsy is all representing of that as well. And the thing that's very interesting about Z is it's all supernatural beliefs. The Catholic Church would point to those practicing these in the Houdon or the Santeria or the Kendombi or whatever it would be, would point to that as also of the devil and of the other. And they are basically would group in Z and that witch and say, you need to stay away from that evil influence. They are, they are the same. They are all of the devil. And Coffin Joe makes it a point to stand separate from even that even though that type of spirituality has some sort of more of a hold on him because the guilt that comes out of that, of the things that you do wrong will come back to haunt you, not because of punishment from a otherworldly God, but because what you do affects you as a person. I think the voodoo kind of, or whatever it may be that Houdon or whatever it is that this gypsy practices, this witchcraft where she tells him of this, supernatural that will come for him that when the dead speak that they will have their vengeance it sits with him more so because he has to live with the guilt of what he's done this antonio person probably was his friend but he became competition and the humanity that's in him that does exist because you do have emotions you do have feelings no matter how much you tamp them down or they've been beaten out of you or even you know if you're psychotic and completely unaware of them they do come out and manifest in other ways and so that's where it all kind of stems from. And I think he was shaken because she told him, she told Antonio, you will die. And the entire time Z is planning the death. So 
is she actually reading it from a spiritual world or is she like side-eyeing at Joe going, get away from him. He's going to kill you and trying to tell the guy. That's a dark way of looking at this, man. I like that. That's not something I had considered is that, uh, well, first of all, the, gy- the the gypsy may be just being a really good observer of human nature and the relationships around her because she's part of this village as well. And so it's not like she's entering into this this uh, fortune telling seek you know a section of or this fortune telling session without having some prior knowledge of these people and their interactions. So that you're right about that. I had not considered that as as something. It, it was it was a separate thing in my mind. But you're right. But the uh, the other thing that's a dark that's an even darker way of looking at it is he needed a sounding board. He actually had a friend, someone that, or at least you know what, as close to a friend as he could honestly have, and then. Um, yeah, suddenly he's got something I actually want. And that it doesn't concern me that this person has done no wrong to me. And as a matter of fact, probably in the past has done very positive and helpful things for me, even if it's just by being someone who I can count on to listen to me while I get drunk. <laughs> you've got <laughs> that that as a background for these characters. That makes it even darker. So, uh, you know, thumbs up, man. Good Good job, Court. Good job. <laughs> Well, I, I struggle with some of that same darkness that, that Z has. Luckily, I found someone to bring me out of that. Otherwise, I could have been down this route myself as as I'm an angry, God-hating atheist myself. You know, I could have very well <laughs> gone this route, too, you know. Well, let's take a sideline here. Let's do a little slight sidebar here for just a moment. Um I, I know that you you've you've discussed this often, and I I don't discuss it often because I don't find it crops up as something relevant to a lot of the films that I discuss on various podcasts. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes a uh, discussion of this particular uh, topic will kind of get in the way of a discussion of uh, a narrative a narrative structure. But since we can do this, and we've certainly got the time, um, both both of us are 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 non believers. And uh, I know how I came to mind, which is just kind of the the rationalist's view of uh, someone who grew up steeped in a particular form of Christianity. And um, I was raised a strict Southern Baptist. Uh, and there's a, there came a certain point in life where, you know, the more you learn about life and the more you learn about the realities of things out in the world, it's it, it becomes harder and harder to um, hold on to these, you know, these supernatural restrictions, these supernatural restrictions on the way of of thinking and the not the it's not a question of the uh, the moral teachings. It's more a question of the uh, the belief system that underpins them and and that is built upon the idea that. Uh, you need to have these particular beliefs or you are automatically uh, immoral or wrong. And I was just curious, I, what, it, how did you come to, uh, uh, let's just say, a lack of belief? Because I don't think that um, – I, I think that um, religion is generally something that instills itself in you, know, in you pretty young. And I'm wondering, what did you have to shake off? You know that point in your life as a very, very young child when you realize, say, the cartoons that you're watching aren't real. Like, you have that moment where everything you're told you believe and everything you see on TV you think is real at that very early age. And then at some point you realize this is just a TV show. This is just a story. You know, Batman's really not in danger of getting blown up by Cesar Romero's Joker or anything like that. You just kind of realize all of a sudden hey these are actors or this is just a book that somebody wrote that that moment of realization that little bit of clarity where you move over from being 
a child with childlike wonder and just believing every story is real. And then you just kind of all of a sudden go, well, this, this thing is not real. This thing is not something that actually exists. This is just something that somebody made up for like a parable or entertainment value or something like that. Everybody has that. They're not aware of when it happens. And for me, that happened for everything at like, I would say probably six, seven or eight shortly before, you know, going into like kindergarten somewhere like, you know, like five, six, somewhere around there, perhaps I started realizing the, you know, the way that the world around me was, you know, I didn't have to fear the vampires. I didn't have to fear the, the zombies from night of the living dead, (laughs) you know, and those kind of things that I may have seen at far too young of an age, it wasn't real. And then looking at it from that lens when I was being told, Hey, this is all just a parable and a way to teach you how to interact with other people. You know, this story isn't real, but you can still gleam a lesson from it. I always looked at that. That's what the Bible was like. Even the Bible has its own parables where stories aren't even a real thing. It's just a way of trying to teach someone. And so I thought, well, if that's a parable, then all of this is a parable. Everything here is just, a way of, you know, a system of how people are supposed to believe. And it wasn't until I would say probably nine, 10, 11 years old that I was able to articulate that I didn't really believe it like everybody else did. It wasn't until, you know, where I have friends that are starting to do the altar call and are like, I was touched by God and all of that, that I'm looking around and I'm going, wait, you, you think this is all real? (laughs) And I got terrified. I, I was I was horrified that that there were people that believed it and that it was it was absolute. It was so real to them that if I didn't feel like they felt I was going to go to hell, I was less than them. And it took me a really long time to get over that. And I was really just kind of hurt and upset that I was like, why? Why do you feel this way? Like, how how do you not see that, you know, this is just kind of you do bad things, bad things happen to you. You do good things. Good things should happen to you. You you treat other people with respect and when they need you, you you're there and you should be able to expect them to reciprocate. These are all, you know, social mores that we can all agree on without fear of a intangible sky daddy spanking you in the ass when you're doing something wrong. Like I just couldn't, it just never processed for me any other way as far back as I can remember. And it wasn't until there was some weird church exercise that I had like at 11 or 12 or something like that. And like the youth group stuff that they would do, um, you know, the hip way to indoctrinate the kids these days. Everybody has those youth groups. And uh, you talk about Southern. Yeah. You... <laughs> okay. Hip is not something that these things ever have been or will be, but nice, nice call. Yeah. Well, that's what, it, that's what they tried to make youth groups out to be. And you said, oh, you, yeah. were, you said you were raised Southern Baptist. I'll see mm-hmm. your Southern Baptist, sir. And I'll raise you church of the Nazarene. Oh my God. I, my, oh my God! My my grandfather, my mother. They have they 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 have medications for you, sir. <laughs> my mother's father was a revivalist minister in the Nazarene faith. He was the one that would come in and do the camp revivals, or come into people's churches and whip them up into a frenzy to get the numbers back in the pews and stuff like yeah. that. He settled down and built his own church. And I'm not just saying built his own church. I mean, he physically was part of the crew that laid the cement, laid the foundation, and built the church. Not once, but twice. (laughs) He did it twice. Because they they didn't do it right the first time? What? What? No, it actually got bigger under his, you know, under his pastorage. 
and they needed a better facility, so they built a bigger and better facility. So the parsonage actually was in the back part of this smaller, older church, and then they built another one. And, you know, he never lost that revivalist minister faith. He never lost that absolute belief. The Thanksgiving Day prayers, Rodney, were five hours. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> My Lord. Well, not literally. I'm being, you know. Uh, no, but I understand that feeling of being there and going, man, the food's getting cold. Yeah. And I have aunts in my family who literally believe that Jesus is talking to them. Like they will stop you mid-conversation and say, yes, Lord, as if he's right there saying something to them. And then they wow. can pay it. It's, like, it's, they, they feel it, you know, it's, it's that present in their life, as they would put it. Yeah. And my mother was actually, uh, they call them stewards in some faith. Um, they were just board members in this Nazarene church, but it would be like a steward or like really involved in the decision making of the church, you know, daily kind of thing. And I was raised and brought into this world and my mother would drag me there twice on Sundays, once on a Wednesday night. And sometimes I'd have to be there during the board meetings. <laughs> oh my Lord, <laughs> man. Well, yeah, my grandfather was a Baptist minister and, uh, on my father's side. And, uh, I've always suspected just from the attitude before my, in the years before my father passed, um, and this has been a, a few years ago now, I, I've often wondered just how uh, strong my father's faith remained because, uh, A, because his father was a minister and uh, most of the stories growing up uh, from my father about his own father were um, harrowing. And kind of, kind of, kind of terrifying in a certain ways. I, I knew, I knew, I knew the man. And to me, he was just this, this old guy who, you know, dearly loved grandchildren because, you know, he was old now and, and either trying to get into heaven or trying to figure out exactly who these people were. And, um, oh man, it's, it's, I do wonder in his later years where, whether, how far from the faith my father may have strayed. And we never talked about it because, and the reason I have these these little these little things in the back of my mind that my father may have kind of fallen away from his uh, rather strict religious upbringing as he got older is the the heaps of derision that he kept around and flung verbally at uh, very very religious people from time to time. Uh, it's from my father that I learned uh, about uh, people you know, people who see the rapture around the corner every fifteen minutes. <laughs> People he referred to as end timers. He loved end timers, man. <laughs> he loved end timers. He 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 would talk about. He liked pocket watches. He would talk about. Yep, time to reset the pocket watch. The end timers have done the math again. So, uh, <laughs> and I just, you know, I wonder how much of that. And I was I wasn't perceiving it because I didn't. Um, I I saw myself as a teenager as, some, as someone who was playing the odds. I'll believe in this crap because I'm just playing the odds. <laughs> you know, it might be garbage, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to go along with it. Pascal's but wager, huh? Pretty much, exact. Yeah, pretty much, exactly. That's where most and, agnostics sit, where they're like, "Well, I don't really know if I believe it or not. I don't really want to debate it or not, but just in case, if I if I hadn't." A nickel for every time someone laid Pascal's wager on me to try and sway me away from atheism, man. Oh, yeah. I would be a rich man. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it, the, the fact that that played so heavily into my teenage years before before I, you know, before, you know, sometime in my 20s, I really kind of just went, you know, I've got to really put some serious thought into this. Uh, I wonder how much of that may have been put there just by absorbing 
you know, by osmosis, my father's uh, growing attitude. Like I say, I never got the chance to just like ask him outright, uh, which is a shame. My father died unexpectedly. And so we never just, you know, it's just one of those conversations you never got around to. But um, as a sidebar, this is absolutely fascinating because I think that um, <laughs> there's 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 a there's a generic phrase that I like to toss around, which is that all religious people are generally religious in pretty much the same way, but all atheists got there some kind of psycho Billy way. <laughs> God only knows what the what what the solo sounds like, even though the rhythm may be the same. So um, the uh, ways in which uh, people kind of come to a realization of uh, disbelief uh, is is really kind of fascinating to me in a way that. Uh, Pretty much all, you know, everybody, you know, if you're if you are of a religion, you know, nine times out of ten, you you were just born into it. You were raised by people who had that religion. And then there's that 10 percent that convert from one to another. Now, they've got a story to tell, but yeah. uh, <laughs> there, there's something going on there. But um, back to this film and the, and the use of religion within it, I love watching the breakdown of this society in this movie because we have two. If you if you want to posit that somehow or another the Undertaker is a major authority figure within the town, simply by virtue of it being this guy, because he's a violent psychopath, the other two authorities within this town would be the police, who can never have the kind of <laughs> they can never have the kind of proof that would allow them to lock this maniac murdering bastard up. They they never have any proof of it. They don't have enough proof of anything. And there's a certain question as to whether they're cowed by this man's rather, you know, forceful and violent ways to begin with. And then there is the doctor. Now, it's very clear the doctor does not like Zadik Aishon. He does not like this guy at all. Joe, he sees as exactly what he is. But he also never really speaks up or speaks out about him. But he, like I say, those are the two, the other two authority, quote unquote, authority figures that we see working within the town. And they're useless. The cops never have enough on him. The doctor is, you know, not willing to to do or say anything that would, you know, you know rally some kind of, I don't know what we need pitchforks and torches, I guess. But that, you know, that never happens. So what you see is as the film goes on, I don't know about you, but the first time I saw this movie, I kept waiting for one or the other authority figure to actually do something, to to say something, to make some kind of move, and that be the impetus for the final act of the movie, you know, essentially you know, chasing the monster with pitchforks and thor- torches, as I said. And the only nod we get to that at all is that scene in the bar where one of those one of those guys, one of the locals, he's he's not an authority figure. He's just a guy who's just had too much of Joe's bullshit <laughs> and 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 starts some crap. And it's this bar fight that um you know doesn't end well for anybody, but Joe certainly is not cowed and 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 it doesn't change anything for him. If nothing else, he seems to revel once again in the violence. Well, there's two different bar fights where that happens. The first one is where the bald man stands up to him and he whips him into submission and is only stopped by his friend from from killing him by beating him to death with the whip. And then the right. second bar fight is after Joe's first target for his breeding stock, because again, he doesn't see humans as anything else other than that, is dead. She's killed herself. And so he starts noticing that the bar maiden is female 
and could possibly carry a child. <laughs> yeah. At this point with this film, it's like, well, wait a minute. How many women are in this damn thing? And so he goes after the barmaid and he's starting to try and do a very seductive, very sweet, like obviously being forceful has not worked for him. So now he's going to have to go the other route. And he tries to do almost, I guess, what Coffin Joe considers his romance, where he gives her a gift of here's some cash. And, you know, let's let's talk. Let's hang out. Why don't you just sit on my lap, even though I scare the hell out of you kind of thing. And then her uncle, I think it is, comes over and tries to stop him and demands that, you know, he throws yeah. the money down. And that's where that fight happens. And I wouldn't yeah, even call that's that a pretty fight. Bad. That's just an assault. He just basically grabs a crown of thorns off of a Jesus statue and brains the guy Rams in the side in, of the yeah. face. Yeah. <laughs> Which is wholly gruesome and absolutely representative of everything that Joe's doing in this film and also that Marenz is doing in this film. He's taking this person's belief in their their structure, in their religion, and literally throwing it back in his face and using it to harm him. I mean, that that encapsulates this whole entire film in a nutshell is that one scene. And it being the representation of the crown of thorns, you know, the thing pressed down onto Jesus's forehead just to cause him pain. You know, there's you go out of your way to use that, you know, to to craft something to craft this this little figure that has an actual removable crown of thorns (laughs) so that you can you go that far out of your way. You're really kind of, you know, waving a big red flag and going, I want someone to be angry with me for this. Come on. Come on. Yeah, he literally grabbed that when he could have just grabbed the whole bust and done even more damage. This was specifically throwing it in the face of the town, this person that stood up to him. And then immediately after the guy backs away, it's not until after the guy caves and goes and picks up the money that Joe actually loses respect for him. Because he actually, I mean, even though there was a fight there when he didn't do what he said he would do and he, he injured him... I do believe that the man would have stood up to him again and just said, no, I think Joe would have respected him more and may have even yeah. backed off of that niece of his that works at the bar. But it I think you're I think you're right. Yeah, doesn't turn out that way because, you know, the whole animalistic thing of only the strong survive in the wild didn't get satisfied here. He submitted and therefore Joe took that as well. You're just a coward and I can do what I want. Well, remember, the only moment where you could see him doing something in this entire film that is actually a, a laudable and understandable human thing is when he sees uh, he's he's out near the, the cemetery and he sees this man angry with his own child and kind of swatting at him. And he goes over and stops him and tells him, you don't don't beat your child. Don't don't beat your child. This is the continuation of your bloodline. Don't do that. And it's him reprimanding this parent for, you know, uh, you know, a light spanking of a child. That is the only moment in the movie where you're like, oh, well, there's a human being trying to intervene and and keep something from advancing into something more horrible for this poor child. And it's like, um, yeah, but his reasons for that are, are, are twisted to the, to, to, to a degree that are, let's just say that the first time you see that you're kind of stunned because it's like, well, that's an actual human, (laughs) human sequence of events for this man to go, do not hit your child, physically stop him, all these things. And it's like, yeah, but the underpinnings, it's that beautiful moment where the second time that all it takes is a second thought and you're like, oh, wow. Uh, For me, anyway, what it seems is it's when you observe something from the outside and you attribute to the participants um, motivations that they may not have. So from someone, someone from outside seeing that would think, well, that's a that's a good, kind man who doesn't want to see children hurt. 
Uh, no, he's he's not any of those things. <laughs> his his motivations for that are not what you would normally think they are. And uh, like I say, I'm not like I say, this can be completely an accidental thing that's just a you know a, a, appearing to my vision because of of looking for these kind of things within the structure of it. And I don't think it's something that I think it's something he built within the story himself that Marin's built within the story to, to uh, emphasize once again, his feelings about carrying on the bloodline about creating a, a place for children to be that next generation, that that being the most important thing to him. But because I'm you know, because there are all these other things in the film that just scream out, you know, pay attention to the fact that this is, you know, symbolic to some degree. It's hard to not look at that scene and go, well, wait a minute, let me, let me, let me look a little bit deeper into this. And it's hard to know whether he meant for you to or not, or if he meant that just to be another little piece along, you know, another, uh, you know, uh, point toward the kid, the, the, the underlying nature of why this character is the way he is. Well, I think one of the things that, that points out too is he feels that children are in a state of not being corrupted they believe exactly what they've been shown and if a child is raised in that manner i mean i get the sensation that maybe coffin joe was an abused child himself why else would he have so much hate and disdain for people on top of possibly being a war veteran in one of the most disturbingly horrific wars that we will ever know adding upon that and also he so desperately wants to have a child of his own seeing a father take for granted the blessing in his eyes that is the ultimate thing to achieve of having your bloodline continued with a son and having seen that father mistreat his son not only with the spank but also dragging him around and berating him and embarrassing him in public you know pretty much in the town square it sends joe over the edge to a point but he corrects the man and tells him like, you know, essentially what it feels like he's saying there is I would give anything and I am giving anything to have a son and you have a son and you're taking that for granted, sir. You need to treat your child better. It's like this, almost like he's motivated by the jealousy and he doesn't hurt the man. He just basically corrects him. And the man seems to have that influence sway him in some way where it's almost like abuse your child and cough and Joe's coming for you, you know? <laughs> it's a really interesting aspect in the film in that perspective too, because the bloodline is everything. And just because you can achieve it doesn't mean you deserve it. That's an amazing idea too, that he never, that I don't think that Marin's ever played with. I don't think the, the, the idea of coffin Joe as the, you know, the boogeyman, the protector of children. I mean, that's, that would be an interesting path to go down. He does do that in Embodiment of Evil a little bit without getting too much into that story, because I would hope yeah. that we can continue these discussions. I would love to dig into more Marin's films with you. <laughs> oh, man, I would absolutely love to. I mean, and and to 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 come to the point where we, we kind of probably ought to, which is let's let's go ahead and jump around to the ending, because there's a there's a lot of meat on that bone. And I and it's it's not a lamb shank. Uh, I'd, like, I'd like to uh, I'd like to go ahead and get into um, before we're before we're up far too late. And I I make my uh, my beloved girlfriend uh, wish wish for me to to shut the hell up so she can get some sleep. Uh, the, the, <laughs> Um, we, we, well, when we get to the end there, there are a number of things. I mean, first, uh, the, you know, dear coffin, Joe, uh, does, uh, off his best friend, Antonio, and he rapes Antonio's fiance, uh, with the idea toward her being the one who'll bear his child. 
Um, she tells him up, she tells him after the, the attack, he's very pleased with himself, but she tells him, you know, that she's going to kill herself. He doesn't believe her, but she does do so. And this is, this seems to shake him quite a bit. Um, but before he, uh, descends into what, uh, the final act will be, he realizes that the local town doctor, Dr. Rodolfo, uh, has begun to maybe piece together enough evidence that uh, he might be able to present to the police that Joe is uh, responsible for these deaths and that, uh, you know, they're not accidents or they're not whatever they appear to be or what Joe is trying to make them look to be. And so what happens is uh, he go uh, good old Joe goes to, to visit the doctor and uses his long fingernails to poke out the doctor's eyes and then uh, burn his house down and kill him. Um, <laughs> using the alcohol that he takes a little swig from first, just so it doesn't all go to waste. Well, you know, that's probably expensive stuff. So <laughs> you want to, you want to be careful, yeah. but it's at this point where I think Joe, if, if the, the suicide of Teresa didn't shake him completely, I think that that may have been the catalyst. And that's, that's debatable because what we have is this amazing, like eight minute long sequence while Joe is, wandering around, drinking, uh, cursing God, um, and just railing, screaming and ranting kind of his own philosophy. There's a storm going on and lightning, and this just kind of adds to the entire effect, of course. And what you have is this almost, like I say, I think the, the sequence is about eight minutes long, and it's kind of Coffin Joe's kind of warped, sad, strange, and pathetic at times statement of purpose or philosophy um at, you know his philosophy as you know drunken spastic <laughs> rant and it's absolutely fascinating to watch and what it what what happens after that is where i think you have to decide for yourself if what we're watching is a realistic realistic representation of what actually happens in that small brazilian town or are we now seeing the psychotic break from the perspective of Coffin Joe? Because essentially the dead rise and attack him. There's no other way to put it. In Glitter Vision, no less. In Glitter Vision, which is, which is fascinating. We, we know how he did the effect, which is to actually like glue glitter to the, to the negative to get that weird effect. And of course, it's, it's cheesy as hell, but my God, it's fascinating. I think if they would have taken a little more time and brought the glitter all the way up to the actor instead of just having that little small outline across them, I think it probably would even be more convincing than what it is. It has a certain charm to it, a certain effect that you can't quite get over. It looks yeah. cornball to you, but at the same time, imagine seeing that in a place that isn't known for having its own homegrown films, let alone horror films, in the 60s. It probably would have tripped you out, man. <laughs> Oh, it would have definitely tripped me out. I mean, it tripped me out in the 90s, for God's sake. So here's my question. Now, I'm sure you're aware to one degree or another of the the long ongoing debate and conversation. It's not really a debate. It's more of a conversation about um, horror films in general. And what it revolves around, and my favorite aspect of this of this kind of higher level conversation about horror movies and horror stories in general to a certain degree uh, at least the ones that encompass uh, any kind of supernatural element is that there's an inherent conservatism to supernatural horror films in, in, in the larger, more philosophical way of looking at the structures of storytelling. And because if you have 
within the structure of the story a character or characters who are non-believers. In other words, not necessarily non-believers in a religious precept or a religious belief system, but non-believers in the specific supernatural thing that the story is putting in front of you. Like, say, they don't believe in vampires or they don't believe in zombies or they don't believe in whatever, whatever, whatever. The movie by virtue of existing and putting these characters through the paces proves in the reality of the film that that person is wrong. So you have someone, I, I, one of my favorite horror films in the world is the exorcist, but I find the Catholicism that it's based on and the thing that it, that, that is at the center of it to be completely ridiculous. That doesn't make it a less effective horror film for me, but it does point to what I'm trying to point out about, the the relative well let's just to say it is an inherent thing it's built into the system because for the story to have realism for the characters within it and to actually to functionally work unless it's a Scooby Doo plot where uh-huh. you pull them where you pull the mask off you know the the banker trying to run everybody off so he can buy the place for 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 pennies on the dollar turns out it was old man withers all along exactly unless it's a Scooby Doo plot what the structure of the story does is prove the disbelievers to be wrong. The supernatural thing actually exists, which, of course, backs up the idea of, you know, the the the, the rather formalized structure of religion, which is, yeah, you don't believe me now, but when you die, you'll believe me. <laughs> right. Is, is the, it's, it's that ultimate, you know, that ultimate uh, the, the gotcha thing that they that they'll fling out there. So if we. If if it's if it's clear that that's kind of the thing that happens in a lot of movies is that the structure of it and the way it's built kind of reinforces a belief in either religion or a supernatural element or just whatever you want to say. Is that what we see here is what he's trying to do present us a, a, a rather, you know, in this case, standard supernatural horror story in which the protagonist, the disbeliever is proven to be incorrect at the end. In other words, he suffers his comeuppance through supernatural means, therefore putting therefore putting the lie to his disbelief. I actually believe that the reason that the films ended the way that they do, both the first and the second one, is because in his particular nation at that time, there was no way that film would be able to be released without the spiritual comeuppance. And I think the spiritual comeuppance that he gets if you really pay attention to the film, is more based on what he was told by the Santeria or Kambambi or uh, Udon or whatever faith it's supposed to be, but the witch. All the things that she says were going to happen on how he would be cursed is what happens. So it's actually this more broad, generalized, spiritual thing that happens to him that he ended up incorporating where the dead come back for their vengeance, which leaves it really open to your specific interpretation. Do you want it to be that God is punishing him by allowing the vengeance to come from the dead being raised to get what they get? They deserve to get back with both the uh, Antonio and we're calling her Teresa because it's easier for both of us to say. Um, It's much easier. Yeah. Or is it just something he was forced to do? Because when you see a film that he has made, what Marin's makes without any interference where he's allowed to do literally whatever he wants to do. Coffin Joe wins 100% wins gets literally everything he wants. I do believe that he fully intended coffin Joe. However, it was supposed to happen 
maybe he would get recompense where he goes to jail and that would be the only punishment that they could do, you know, because they can finally pin the murder of the doctor on him or it's one a bridge too far and then the town people were coming for him. But the religious aspect of it, they needed to have Coffin Joe suffer, spiritually speaking, for all of the blasphemy and all of the things that he does. And that eight-minute speech you were mentioning earlier, that is Marin's favorite part of the film. He is still proud of it to this day. And it is He should be, man. He should be. It is the single greatest thing about Coffin Joe. All the stuff that he's saying there, I almost 100% believe. It's just that the problem with it is, is he's using it to justify his bad behavior. What he should be saying is all of this, there is no limits for what a man can do other than what they can live with in their own conscience. And I have none. So therefore I am all powerful. You have to have that conscience or you're just an animal. And I still believe that hits his subconscious his the part of his damaged brain that the delusional areas of his brain that are manifesting the guilt he's feeling because he's lost his best friend. He may have actually been in love with Teresa and he screwed that up by forcing himself on her, raping her and causing her to kill herself. So through his own actions, he's lost two things that he cares for. He never even comes into concern with his wife because we're supposed to believe or uh, initially the idea is that she cheated on him anyway. So he kills her for that more than just not being able to bear him a child. Uh, so those three things with the guilt, and then he also has the guilt for killing that doctor other than just to try and cover up his other crimes. And I think that just manifests in that spiritual aspect. He's drunk off his ass. He's probably blackout drunk when he's roaming around screaming all this stuff. I think he's having hallucinations the entire time. And he does that damage to himself freaking out or trying to open the coffins or whatever in that tomb. And by the time we see him fall out of that, when the townspeople are looking like they're going to go lynch him, that's the end of his life for this film, supposedly, because he beats himself like that. He injures himself thinking that it's the ghost coming for him or running into trees and all of that kind of stuff. I just don't think it registers in his severely damaged and completely psychotic brain. And that is the other interpretation is either it's really happening the way we're seeing it. The dead are coming back to life and attacking him or it's all in his head. We're seeing the manifestation of his own psychosis in its final form and he's lost his mind completely and is you know, essentially flipping out. He's in the final he's in the final stages of a break as a film goer who just likes to watch supernatural horror. And as an EC Comics fanatic, I want the dead to rise (laughs) to get revenge because that's how it has to happen. The dead always rise for revenge for EC Comics stuff. Of course, of course. But as a philosophical standpoint and looking at it from the perspective of, you know, the reviewer and trying to pull out things that are probably not even there that we're just over-interpreting and just kind of looking in deeper, that's the way that I always saw it as, in reality, if this was supposed to be a 100% realistic portrayal of everything that's happening because it's not until that crossover point that we see anything actually supernatural in the film. I think it's hallucinations. I think he's losing his mind and I think he's he's at his wit's end because he's watching all of his plans fall to nothing and he will not be able to continue his bloodline and he's almost giving up and he's just losing it there. But as a fan of these kinds of supernatural films, I want him to have the revenge happen on him. So either way, however Coffin Joe or or Marin's himself wants the film to be interpreted. 
I'm fine with, but I love that it's just enough to where you don't know. You really don't. You can look at it either way, and I think both viewpoints are valid. It's just whatever whatever filter you're looking through it at, which is really the brilliant thing about this film. Everything about this, whether he's an anti-hero or just a 100% horrible human being, all depends upon what your baggage is and what you put on that character while you're watching it. And that, to me, is the reason this film will will live on it has it's had such a long life as it stands we're talking 50 plus years at this point it's gonna be it's gonna stick around forever because it so effectively communicates so many different things it is i mean like i say you don't have to have grown up within a brazilian culture or with catholicism as your your religious belief system to get the things that he's doing there's all this stuff is universal to a large degree and it's just the details that that bring specifics to it he's hitting on so much amazing universal emotional well let's just call them levels because it's possible to read almost any personalized situation that uh, that that you bring to this narrative into it you can see yourself at as that raging lunatic there's a way to identify with this despicable human being at different times and not under not, not not you know not not sympathize with him or really even understand him completely but to see yourself you know to see this dark fractured mirror reflecting yourself back at you at times and not just giving you a you know a parable or um, a, a morality tale or anything that you might call it, but to 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 show deeper, darker things, ways of looking at these sad, sad things that we all have to deal with throughout life. I don't I don't want to I don't want to scare people away, <laughs> but this is this is a thoughtful film that will. I mean, I've not seen a single individual watch this movie in my life and not come away wanting to talk about it and not just talk about how amazing it is that a film, you know, made in 1963 or 64 uh, had, you know, this level of violence or 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 worked through some of these themes in such a naked fashion, but that it conjures so many conversations around the philosophies that are being talked about, whether, you know, whether you're steeped in the ones that the, that the film grew out of or not, it doesn't matter because these are all universals. These are all things that we all deal with to one degree or another. And this film does a great job of really kind of, of, um, giving them voice or, or holding them up as examples and kind of twisting and turning and showing different aspects of it and making you kind of think about them a little bit. And anytime a film can do that, it's, 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 it's wonderful. And when you're doing it in a horror film, a horror film, it's for me, of course it's perfect because I, I like horror films. I love them to death and I watch them as much as I can, but horror films don't have to make you think this one I, I don't know if he set out to make people think or if he set out to make a horror film or if he did both at the same time. And I don't know if he's an illiterate and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he's he's a genius. I don't know if he was reading philosophical books. I don't know if he was, you know, pouring over, you know, Plutarch and discovering the histories of, of the universe. I don't know. But what I'm saying is that what he's done with this film, if no other mo- if he made no other movie in his entire life, what he's crafted here is a piece of art. Don't be scared. <laughs> Don't be scared. No, it is. But it's a it it's a is. piece of it's a piece of art, and it it is all of these things. It's imperfect. 
it, it, some of it, some of it works, some of it doesn't work, some of it's uh, less effective, some of it's crude, some of it's silly, some of it is not going to appeal to every viewer, and that's what art should be. This is wonderful, wonderful filmmaking, and it's a wonderful, wonderful film, but it's, like I said, when we decided we're going to cover this, well, I'm not going to show it to the woman. <laughs> it's not for everyone, and I, no, I hope no. that the people that are listening to this that haven't given the movie a chance, we've kind of gone through a lot of it without really spoiling a, like a lot of the details, and it's, it's 82 minutes, and it's an easy jump-on point for this kind of cinema, so... Yeah, a shot, yeah, it is. You know? <laughs> I do have one more equation that I would actually like to make between this and both of our other loves of Spanish horror, if I can. Sure. I see a lot of the same kind of themes that whenever Nashi comes into his own and starts writing, like with El Caminante and The Howl of the Devil and those kinds of films, that I see with Jose Marin's and, and Coffin Joe's stories that he's trying to hash out. It's these universal truths about the human condition that is very safely nuzzled like like a, a pill in peanut butter for a dog in horror. Where <laughs> yeah, yeah, good way to put it, yeah. Where you're gonna get this blast of antibiotics that you need in your brain, but if you don't pay attention, you don't realize it's there, and it's almost like planting a seed of having you think other things. And I, I that's the thing I love the most about horror and I see the, these two men equated very closely because you see the passion and you see the storytelling, you see the art and you see the craft transcending the budgets, transcending the limitations, and more so making an end run around the theocratic and or fascist regimes that they're making this craft in and still getting out the stories, the belief systems, the, the philosophies wrapped in the peanut butter of horror so that no one really notices that that's what's happening. And it's just so amazing to see the two of them juxtaposed together that I just, I had to bring that up. I think you're onto something there and I think you're right to point in that direction. And I think that uh, there are some similarities um, between the two filmmakers, between Paul Nashi and Jose, Mo uh, Jose Marins. I think there's a lot there that uh, it would be very easy to tease out. And of course, one of my, one of the most obvious, because you you referenced El Caminante and Howl of the Devil, and you're talking about a couple of stories there that Nashi told that are happening, you know, uh, a decade into his career, and then two decades into his into his career, where by that time the 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 man was becoming more and more uh, disillusioned with uh, filmmaking as a business, and the bitterness had started to creep in, and by Howl of the Devil was almost an overwhelming force within his stories, and that bitterness seems to have been there from the jump with Marin's because there's a, there's a definite bitter undertone to his view of the world just in this, in his very first film. And once again, let's, let's point out how remarkable it is that he is, he has crafted with his first movie as, as a writer director. Well, not his, his first, first completed one, but let's point out that that is an amazing uh, accomplishment. That's an amazing accomplishment to to be able to craft such a well put together and multi layered film uh, your first time out. And um, of course, he you know he his his technique got better uh, as he went along because you know, the more you're in the game, the the better you learn how to play it. But he's so fully formed in this first feature, it's 
kind of an amazing thing to watch. It's 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 like watching a bird pop out of the shell and immediately fly. He's really got it going on here. The the, the one of the other threads that if you want to start comparing Marin's to Nashi, that I think it's it's fun to do is both became better known for an alter ego, uh, Valdemar Dodensky, right, than exactly. for, for, the, for themselves. And both of them used that uh, persona to accomplish different things within the structures of their stories, but also within the structures of their entire careers. I mean, clearly Marin's used Coffin Joe to... To you know, up to this day, still uses Coffin Joe uh, to be to be a boogeyman, and he's played that character in in, in different forms and in different uh, different uh, milieus to 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 really good effect. You know, comic books and television and everything under the sun. And of course, Nashi very famously used Valdemar Dodensky as the damn Doctor Who of werewolves, for <laughs> God's sake. I mean, the damn the damn dude could be anywhere, you know, feudal Japan or wherever he needed him to be, and he he was able to use that persona and that character that that uh, you know. Of course, you couldn't find two characters more different. <laughs> uh, Valdemar is a a cursed a cursed man with with a good heart, and that is not Coffin Joe, so. Waldemar is a monster playing at being a man and trying so desperately to get his humanity back. And Coffin Joe is a man trying so desperately to shed his humanity and become the monster he dreams to be. Good way of putting it. (laughs) I do have one tiny little, one more thing. I know I keep stretching this out, but one more thing. No, go ahead, man. Go. Okay. When I got these, the first time that I saw these was in college in the late nineties. The videotapes from uh, something weird video. I had actually gotten a used one at the local uh, record shop that sold used videotapes and stuff like that, too, when I was in college in Pittsburgh. And there was a girl who was from Brazil who was in my circle of friends. And I was watching this film when her and a few other friends came to visit me in my dorm room. And she was so happy that I knew who Coffin Joe was. She talked to me <laughs> for, like, ever because he's that big. You know, he's a he's a big thing there in Brazil. And she was just like, how did, how did you know about this? I'm like, well, I, I just bought the videotape and it looked interesting to me. This, I like the title at midnight. I'll take your soul. And it's, it's an amazing film. I, I've never seen anything quite like it. And she, we just had this really long conversation just about coffin Joe. And it was such an amazing thing where you get to see this cultural divide kind of just get closed immediately over one thing, which is horror. And I love it. That's a great story, man. And I just, I just have one simple question about it. Um, did Coffin Joe get you laid? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to plead the fifth on that. Uh, I wanna, I'm sorry, man. I wanna, you say Brazilian, you say Brazilian woman and I'm sorry. My mind jumps to yeah, one place, place I'm, only. I'm, I'm going to be respectful of everything that happened while at the same time, not denying anything. <laughs> Nice middle ground try there, my friend. That's that's a that's a fence straddling that I can almost respect. Oh, I'm a strong moderate on this one. I, I see both sides of the appeal. <laughs> job. Good job. All right, man. Well, Court, thank you very much for joining me for this uh for this uh wow, uh, a, a little more serious than average discussion of a uh, of a horror film. Thank you. Well that's my pleasure, Rod. I love being able to actually get into a minutia like this, particularly about this kind of film. So thank you so much. And I look forward to moving on to This Night I Possess Your Corpse sometime with you. 
Oh yeah, and that's uh, I'll be honest. That being the uh, the center one, I'll be honest. It's been a really long time because I, I've come back to this first one more times than um, more times than the uh, the other one, the second one. And um, it'll be it'll be interesting. My memories of it are really dim, but I just yeah, we'll we'll have to sit down and talk about that one as well. Court man, once again, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, man. We'll talk to you again soon. 